Good morning, Cornerstone. It is an uh, unprecedented joy and privilege for us to be here with you two weeks in a row. They've got a box of Kleenex here for me in case I don't know. I'm breaking your hearts <laughs> or mine. Uh, but it's a joy to be here with you. And thank you all for giving Julie and I and Ethan so much love. Uh, you have been so kind and gracious to us, from the men who set up in the morning to the worship team, to Andrew who gave me a bag of Lay's BLT Classic chips to get me through this morning. So thank you all. Uh, well, before we get to the word, the lesson this week is God's gift of obedience. And it's part of a three-part series that we're doing from the life of Peter, which is looking at God's provisions for the trials of the cross. But before we get to that, uh, would you stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together and come before him in prayer? We're going to be reading this morning from Psalm 51, one of my uh, favorite and well-needed psalms. It is a psalm for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Oh Lord, we just thank you that you have fulfilled this psalm in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. We come before you this day and rejoice in the fact that you are a good and gracious God. You are the one who gives mercy. You are the one who gives forgiveness. You alone give mercy and grace in our time of need, sufficient, Lord, to wash our sins and to make us whole in Christ. And we come before you, Lord, 
as a fallen and broken people. We are men who are but dust, O Lord. And we confess before you how we fall short of your glory, Lord. How we fall short of your word, how we fall short of your holiness, Lord. In our homes, in our marriages, in our work, in our ministries, Lord. And yet we rejoice in the fact, O Lord, that you have sent a Savior who shed his blood and called us to repentance that we might be with him and be one with him and that we might be made whole with a righteousness that is not our own. And in that we thank you, Lord, and that we rejoice in you. And so we pray today, Lord, as we come and hear your word, Lord, fill our hearts with the joy of your salvation. Fill our minds, Lord, with the goodness of your truth, Lord. And may our hearts be filled with overflowing with your love. Give us, O oh Lord, a new song this day that our lives would never be the same again and that every life we come in contact would be touched by the overflow of the love that you have poured out to us through the cross of Christ, Lord. May we have that opportunity to gather together again as one people before our one God in Christ that we might praise your name, rejoice in you, that we might teach transgressors your ways and that the song on our lips would ever be for your glory and the exaltation of Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. Well, last week we began to look at the life of Peter and we looked at Matthew 4, 12 through 22. And we're going to revisit that text and look at the second half of that text this week. This week. But just as a catch-up, we looked at a lesson number one from the life of Peter, a lesson that Peter learned from coming face-to-face with Jesus on the beach by the Sea of Galilee. And the points that we made last week was, number one, that if you are a true child of God, that God has ordained for you a life that is going to be confronted by trials of the cross, that we are called not only to believe and be given the gift to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his name and for the gospel. And yet God has not called us to something without his provision. And the provision that he has given us, as we talked about with Peter last week, is that God has given us his love, the fullness of his infinite love in Christ, that everything we need is there. And it's not just everything we need, but as Peter will go on and point out in 1 Peter, the only thing that will enable us to face the trials of the cross in our lives is the love of God and Christ that gives us mercy and grace in our time of need. And so that it is in Christ alone that we have resource, strength, provision, and the ability to really honor and glorify God in the face of trials. But today we're going to focus on a second aspect, and I want you to consider two questions, and they're there in your outline, and I've also given you the answers. So if you want the quick version, you can look at the answers and call it a day. But the two questions I, I want you to consider today is if God has given us everything, all his love in the person of Christ. If everything we need for life and godliness is in the knowledge of him and that's where it is, then how do we, how, how specifically is that love given to us? What are the ways in which God pours that into our life? And what is the way that we're supposed to receive that love? In our marriages, in our ministries, in our home, in our classrooms, in our work? What are the tangible and specific ways? And of course, the answer to that question 
is given to us in the life of Christ and the life of Peter and in Matthew 4. So turn with me, if you will, if you have your Bibles, and let's have a look at Matthew 4, 12 through 22. We're here once again at what's often referred to as the call of the first disciples. Jesus' encounter with Peter and his brother Andrew on the beach along with James and uh, his brother John. And we begin in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. There is a prominent African-American scholar who I find quite interesting and quite entertaining. And though I do not agree with all his theology, whenever I hear about him speaking, I try and tune in. You may have seen him on the Bill O'Reilly show, and you may have seen him on PBS. He has a very distinctive scholarly look with the big scholarly glasses and the big scholarly rabbinical beard. He's a big space between his teeth, what the dentists call a uh, diastema, and he's got a big afro, and uh, his name is Dr. Cornell West. And Dr. Cornell West tells a story of when he first began to teach at a prestigious Ivy League school. He showed up early on his first day because he wanted to find the classroom, and he did not want to be lost. And he was a little nervous and trying to find exactly where he was to be. And so he arrived in the classroom early. And as he got to the classroom early, of course, he discovered that there were a cluster of students who also had arrived on the first day early to class. But there was one student in particular who was a little annoyed. And he was annoyed because the classroom had not been cleaned up the night before. There was still trash in the garbage, and there were other remnants from the evening class before. And as the student looked and saw this very unorthodox and very non-preppy older man walk into the classroom, his immediate assumption was this janitor. So what he did. Okay, thank you. So, student automatically assumed by that he was. Let's see if we can survive here with my funny ears. Okay, that that 
Dr. West was the janitor, so he immediately pointed to the trash and told Dr. West to take out the trash. Now, I would ask you, how would you or I respond if we were in that And the phenomena of what Dr. West did was he quietly and graciously took the trash, walked out of the room, found the janitor and said, there's trash here and removed it, and then promptly returned to the class, came to the front of the classroom, introduced himself as Dr. Cornell West and proceeded to teach his students. And there was one student in that classroom who felt not only like a bit of a fool, but probably had a little bit of fear and trepidation about how the rest of his semester would go. But I, I tell you this story because in many ways, as American Christians, this is very much the way we treat and we receive our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a janitor who is welcome to come into our lives and our homes and our jobs as long as he's willing to take out the trash of our lives and as long as he's willing to fit and conform with our expectations and our demands. And that is not just true within the secular community, it's abundant in the church and in many evangelical circles because we live in a time and an age where the love that really is celebrated is really about the love of me. And the love of me has a holy trinity. The holy trinity of the love of me is really personal entitlement, personal expectations, and personal fulfillment that is really always on the terms of what I want and what matters to me. And as we look at our text today, we're going to find a very, very different love because the love of Christ is markedly different from that, is it not? The love of Christ is really about a surrendering of expectations. The love of Christ is about submission. And the love of Christ is really about a self-sacrifice that is really represented in the cross. And this is the love that is confronting Peter on the beach in this morning. And the challenge that faces each one of us, of course, is that there's no room for two loves. Either we're consumed with the love of self or we're consumed with the love of the cross. And there is no two ways. And the encounter that we face with Jesus really forces us to make a choice. Which love is going to rule your life? Which word is going to rule your life? And which path is going to be the path that the rest of your life is going to be spent on. As we look at that, and as we look at the text, we consider Peter and what he's confronted with on that beach, as Matthew talks about in Matthew 18, excuse me, in Matthew 4, 12 through 22. And the first way that we really see God gives his love to Jesus, a different love, a love that is totally different from the world, it comes first, as we talked about last week, in a person. And this is what Matthew is talking about in verses 12 through 18. That God sends his love not by long-distance telephone, not by Skype, and not by FedEx, but he sends it in a person. And this is something that we often lose sight of in a church, in ministry, where our lives become about many things, systematic theology, which is important, core group time, which is important, small group time and personal devotion, but it's so easy to lose sight of the one who it's all about, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what God does for Peter on the beach. He sends his love in a person. And what Matthew points out to us in verse 16, 
as he makes a reference to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9, is that what has arrived in the person of Jesus is nothing less than the light of God's glory. It is the entirety of God's infinite love. It is the full radiance that he has sent. He has not shortchanged us. He has not given us something in part, but he has given us everything in full. And so that's who Christ is and that's who he sent. But Matthew also points out the people to whom he's arrived, and that's important to know. And Isaiah makes the point that the people and the land that Jesus has come to is a land that's what? We talked about this last week. It's a land that is living in darkness and that is living in the shadow of death. If you were to go to Galilee at that time, it would not strike you as a land of darkness and as a land of death because it was the breadbasket of the area. It was a financially prosperous region. It was an area that is not dissimilar to America. Things were good. People were provided with. There was good trade because it was strategically located. And yet, in spite of that, Matthew and Isaiah refer to this place as a place that is living in the bondage and darkness of sin and death and beneath the curse of God. And then Matthew also identifies the people who lived in that land. And he puts a face to them in verse 18. In verse 18, he tells us that now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting into, an, into the sea, for they were fishermen. What were the people in this area like? Well, he gives us two great examples. And if you look at the details that Matthew chooses to highlight, he informs us that these are not gangbangers. These are not thugs. These are not crack cocaine heads. These are not the desperate, the derelict. Jesus will come to those, and he will extend his love to those. But the people who Jesus comes and encounters and pursues face to face to bring the love of God and the light of his salvation are men who are first and foremost family men. They are men who are working in a family business. James and his brother John working with their father on a ship or on a boat. Peter or Simon who is working with his brother Andrew. They are very representative of the area, which is that in some ways they become very cosmopolitan. The name Simon is a Hebrew name, but the name Andrew is a Greek name. And so we see a very cosmopolitan community, which is both Greek and Hebrew. But we also see that these men are hardworking men. They are career men. These are not guys who are hanging out in their sofa playing Nintendo or GameStation. These guys are out there doing their job. They are strong men, and they are self-sufficient men. Everything that they need and everything that their family needs is being provided by the sea and they are doing what they need to do to live up or to man up and to be a man's man in a world where you provide for everything, where your job and your occupation is your Medicare, your Social Security, and your disability pension. And yet, what does Matthew in verse 16 inform us about these men? In many ways, these men look an awful lot like you and I. In many ways, these men look like the respectable people who sit in churches every week. And yet Matthew informs us that these are men who are dwelling in darkness. These are men who are lost. These are men who sit in the bondage of sin and stand beneath the curse and the judgment of God. And so we see in this situation where 
Perhaps even many Orthodox Jewish leaders would not have anything to do with these men because of their contact with Gentile people. God sends himself, Jesus, to come person to person, face to face, to meet with these people, to pursue them, and to bring the light of his love. What is the first way that God gives us his love? It is through the person of Jesus Christ. And Matthew makes the point by connecting it with Isaiah's prophecy that what is happening on that moment, as we said last week, is one of the greatest expressions of God's love in the history of man next to the cross. That what we are seeing is the initial fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises that one day he would come to a people who were dying in their sin and he would once again bring his light, the light of his glory and his love out of the temple and bring it directly to them. And he would ultimately one day give them a new heart and a new spirit so that they would know him and that his law would one day be written in their hearts. And the point from Peter's perspective of when that happened came on that encounter on the beach. But Jesus did, as you know, a lot more than just show up on the beach and just stand there in front of Simon and his brother Andrew as they fished. Jesus came and he spoke to them. And that brings us to our second way in which God gives his love to us. That God gives his love to us through the person and presence of his son, Jesus Christ. But even more specifically, God gives his love to us through his word in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 18, Matthew tells us, that not only does he encounter these people, but in verse 19, he comes and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It sounds ridiculously simple, does it not? That God gives his love to us in his We try and say that through mics that are going out, but you know, this is something that's ridiculously obvious, and yet somehow we lose sight of that in just about every aspect of our life. And yet, what is the testimony of Scripture? From Genesis through Revelation, the Lord has given us His love and His person through the Word. Genesis 1, what does it say? And God said, let there be light. And what? There was light. That God brings the whole world into order and into existence through the power of His Word. And then we go to Psalm 19, where we're told that it's the word of the Lord, his commandment, his instruction, that purifies and redeems the soul and enlightens the... Shout. We get to Psalm 119, where we're told that the word of the Lord is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And then we come to John 3.16, where... John tells us that God loved the world that what? He gave us his only begotten son, right? But who does he say that son is in John 1.1 and John 1.14? Son is the word incarnate, the word who became flesh. He's the living word of God. And that living word of God does not come and remain silent 
But that living word of God comes and speaks. And he speaks from the heart and the voice of a man and a God who is the king of glory, the king of heaven, the son of David, the son of God. His words are not just any words, but his words are the light that Isaiah is talking about that has come to dawn on a dark place. His words are the life that has come to give life and love to a dying people. His words are the agency of a new creation to remake people who have no opportunity or ability on their own to reach or touch or come even close to God, but to remake them in his image. And somehow, some way, I don't know about you, but in my life, in my ministry, in my marriage, we seem to lose sight of these things. That life gets busy. There are so many different things to do. And there are so many different voices speaking to us. And suddenly the words that are filling our lives, at best or at worst, are our own lives, oftentimes are the lives of many others. And then we get surprised where there is conflict that comes, where there are challenges that come, where there are problems that come, when we stumble and we fall. And Peter talks about the notion about obeying the word of God so that we would not stumble. The notion that when we're standing in the word and we're obeying the word, we're in the light, but when we depart from that, it's just inevitable that we're gonna hit a wall. Somehow we lose that. And I guess the illustration I would say to you is, in my marriage with my wife, how long do you think my marriage with Julie would last if I chose to remain silent? A day, two days, four days, a week? How long do you think our marriage and our relationship would last if I chose to shut out everything that my wife said. And she could say all she wanted, but it fell on deaf ears. I think you'd agree with me that things would head south very, very quickly. And the point that Matthew is gently making here and that he will elaborate through the rest of his text and First Peter will bring home again and again as he talks to us about the imperishable word that has caused us to be born again, the word that gives life and light, is that you remove that word from the pulpit, you remove that word from your core group, you remove that word from your marriage, you remove that word from your work, you remove the light and the love of God, and all that is left is silence and darkness. And I'm sure Huey can affirm this, but in the medical community, silence is a sign of death. That if there's a patient sitting there who hasn't spoken to you for a while, you better be concerned. God gives us his love in his person, and he gives us his love in his word. But what type of word was spoken to us? And Matthew proceeds in verse 19 and shows us specifically and exactly what was the word that was given. It says, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus didn't give these men any words. He didn't get together with them and have idle chat, chatter over a cup of coffee and talk to them about 
who the Lakers traded for and who's going to be the next champion for the NBA or who won the last Olympic gold medal. There was no small talk happening here. Pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying in this verse. The words that Jesus gives are twofold. He gives them a command followed by a promise. He gives them a command followed by a promise. We do not normally associate love with commands. Commands don't really evoke that warm and fuzzy of champagne and roses and some gorgeous person who's courting us and opening doors and doing everything to press our buttons and providing us with illusions of a life happily ever after, does it? And why is that? Commands are someone telling us what to do, right? That's essentially what a command is. It's someone who's, in, a, in the American society, it's someone who's taking away my freedom, someone who's putting me in a corner. That can't be gracious and loving when you're telling me what to do. But here Christ gives a command. He says, follow me. And so often, pastors will soften this passage and they will say, this is a divine invitation, a divine invitation for discipleship. There's a song called Divine Invitation, not one of my favorites. There's no invitation here. If you look at the Greek, the word is dute. It's, it's just one word which comes out with an exclamation mark, and it's an interjection. And it means come, come now, come immediately. Jesus doesn't give you the option of, here's a great offer to improve your life. Accept me into your heart and your life will be better. He's giving a command. And he's giving a command that gives Peter only two options. What are they? You either obey or you disobey. You either get with the program now or you basically object to the program altogether. You either submit to my authority as the king of heaven, or you choose to rebel by not doing anything. Drives me nuts. Julie will tell you one of my many shortcomings is that I'm a fiery and passionate person, sports, whatever, and I'll jump in and I'll say, this is what they need to do. This is what needs to happen. It needs to happen now. So 12 years of, of being a physician has not helped that, where there's the continual demand for instant, instant decisions, and, and that has been a curse and a plague on my wife, and the Lord is granting me patience and, and growing me in that area to realize that what makes me good as a physician is not necessarily what makes me good as a husband, and, and he's growing me in that. But when we look at certain commands when they come in, there are certain commands that are really of a life-threatening stature or importance. And those demands or commands need to be attended to. And the thing that's hardest when you're dealing with those issues is people who sit out and say, well, I'm going to sit this one out. Well, I'm not sure. I'm undecided. I'm not going to vote yes and I'm not going to vote no. But what Peter gets confronted with is no vote or no decision is actually a vote against. 
What is it that Jesus is commanding him? What is he saying when he says, come now? The rest of that sentence is, come now after me. What's translated in your Bible, follow me. And we usually associate that with discipleship, that discipleship is following, and it's the idea of going after. But what's lost a little bit is that the notion of following after, let me give you this illustration. If I was walking down towards Cornerstone and Julie was walking after me carrying all my bags, what would you think? You probably wouldn't think too highly of me. You'd probably think I emerged from a very sexist, misogynist, dark ages. But the notion that Jesus is talking, the notion of following after is the idea of a servant or a slave, even more so a slave, who is following, who is not worthy to walk with the master or the king. So he is walking at a distance behind. But their lives are combined because they are both on the same path and they are bonded by a relationship of master and servant king and slave. And even the rabbinical notion of a disciple at that time carried with it that notion that the teacher was here and that the disciple was someone who would serve and provide and care for that rabbi or that teacher's every need. And so we see that same phenomena when Jesus offers to wash Peter's feet and Peter is abhorrent to the fact and says, no, I should be the one who's washing you. Don't do this to me. Because Peter knew that that's the nature of that relationship. But Jesus here, when he's saying, come, come immediately, come now, come after me, he is calling Peter to a specific relationship, the king and the slave. But he is also calling Peter to a relationship which that eternally links their two destinies together. He's calling Peter to a path the path that I'm taking, Peter, you are to come on this path. And as you walk on this path, your life is going to be united with mine and eternally bonded with mine. That is the command that Jesus is giving. But Jesus doesn't just give a command. He gives a command that is followed by a promise. What's the promise that he gives? He says, come after me, and then he says, and I will make you fishers of men. We sing that in children's songs. We talk about it. It's a cute notion. We have our kids dress up as fishers and talk about them being fishers of men. And we use this as a paradigm for evangelism. But I think we lose sight sometimes of who it is who is saying this. In order to understand the command and the promise, we have to understand who it is who is making this statement. The verb that Jesus chooses, I will make, is the same verb, poeo, that Paul uses when he talks about the creator in Romans 9, taking a lump of clay and choosing whether to make, poeo, make that lump of clay into a vessel of honor or a vessel for common use. It is a word of creation it is also connected with Paul's notion that if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
And what Jesus is saying to, he, to, to Peter at this moment, to Simon, is no idle promise. He's saying to him, I am going to recreate your life. I am going to make it totally new. And the way I'm going to remake your life is I'm going to remake it in my image. You are going to become like me. You will still be like you, a fisher, a fisherman, but you're going to be like me. You're going to be a fisher of men. What a hope and what a promise that Christ gives, but it's a conditional promise. Come, come immediately. Come after me. Enter into this relationship as my slave and servant with me as your king and as your Lord. And I will bring all of God's promises of the new covenant, all of his promises of salvation, everything that God brought to pass in Genesis, that he would make man in his own image, a promise and an offer and a, and, and a word that we rejected in our sin, that we refused and said, no thanks, God, I don't want to listen to you. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm going to do it the Frank Sinatra way. I'm going to do it my way. And then living under the curse and sin in which we are forever broken and living in darkness. And yet God in his infinite mercy and in his, in his infinite love sent a person. And he didn't just send a person. He sent a person who spoke to us. And he sent a person who spoke to us with a word that was both a command and a promise. This is the command and the promise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why do we struggle with that? Why is it so hard for us to respond? It seems so simple and it seems so obvious. If I was to say to you today, if we were to see Kobe Bryant walk into this room today and he went up to you, went up to my friend Kelly or Ruben and basically said, I've got two tickets for front row seats this evening at the Staples Center, but you gotta cut out a little bit early and maybe not stick around for lunch at Rubio's and you've gotta basically get in my limo and we've gotta go straight there right now. How long do you think it would be for Bob or for Reuben or for Kelly basically to respond to that? I'm not a big Lakers fan, not until Steve Nash came, okay? But, but, but I would suspect even if I was given that offer, I would step to it pretty quickly and I would basically speak to Julie and say, is there any way that we can make this work and you can take care of Ethan and I can cut out and make it there? And yet we think of the words of Scripture. We think of the commands that the Lord gives us to forgive one another, to love one another, to bless those who spitefully use us, to reconcile quickly, to think of our brother, to pray for one another, to assemble together and forsake not the assembling of believers, but to stir one another up to love and good deeds, to speak the truth and love to one another. And yet we hesitate. Why? We have no doubt who Kobe Bryant is. But when we delay, the question that, raised, that is being raised is, 
who is the one who is asking? Is he worthy? Does he have the power? And really, do we trust him to put our lives in his hands? God gives us his love through the person of Christ. God gives us his love through the word of Christ. And God gives us his love through the command and the promise of Christ. And as we look at that command and promise, what we're really looking at is essentially a call to repentance. Matthew alludes to it before. And everywhere we look through the New Testament, we don't think of the repentance too often with the gospel. But every time you look at the proclamation of the gospel, repentance is right there alongside justification with justification by faith. In Mark 1, Mark refers to the same passage as Jesus proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and goes straight to this incident. In Acts 2, when Peter is the first to proclaim the gospel to the world, he brings the same message and calls the men to repent and be baptized and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, when he goes to Mars Hill, stands there and goes before the Greek men. And what does he say? He said that God has commanded us, commanded us to repent. The notion that we are being called or commanded, demanded to leave a path of darkness and sin that is heading for destruction and to give up our kingship and our sovereignty and our belief that we know what's best for ourselves and to go and to pursue Christ and to be in a relationship with him where he is king and he is Lord and the path that we are walking down is the path that he is walking down and that is the path of the cross. That's what Jesus is saying here to Peter. Well, if these are the ways that the love of God is being presented to Peter, what is the way in which Peter receives this? And what are the ways in which we, in every aspect of our lives, are being called to receive the love of God? Matthew tells us in 19, and then he also shows us in the life of James and John. In 19 and 20, he says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of the men. And in verse 20, what's the response? Immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. How do we receive the infinite love of God, his mercy and grace in our lives? How did Peter receive it that day on the beach? It's very simple. It's a simple act of obedience. I can make it as complicated as you want with systematic theology textbooks, countless books, repentance, justification, all of these different things. But when the rubber hits the road, it's a simple act of obedience. And if we look carefully at how Matthew has described it, he gives us three or four characteristics of the simple obedience of Peter that embrace fully and embrace wholeheartedly the love that Christ was giving through his command and through his promise. First, how did Peter receive it? It says immediately, instantaneously. 
No hesitation, no questions asked. You're commanding, I'm there right away. The second aspect that you look at with that is it said, immediately, what did he do? He left his nets. He left his nets. And the verb that's used there for Peter's action of leaving his nets is a theomy. It's a verb that carries with it the notion of surrendering, of letting something go, of creating distance or space between the thing that you're holding on to and the thing that you're releasing it. It's also a verb that sometimes is used for forgiveness. It means that whatever that you're clinging to or hanging on to you no longer has any hold over your life. And for Peter to let go of a net is no idle thing. It would be as if Huey and I gave up our medical licenses in the state of California. Our livelihood, our identity, the source of our security, everything that provides for our families, past, present, and future, everything that represents, everything that we've labored for in our lives, gone, let go, and no longer has a hold on our life. Why? Because the king of glory is commanding us to come after him. Friends, we cannot follow unless there are things in our lives that we are willing to let go of. There are things in each of our lives that hang on to us and hold us closely and hold us tightly. And if you look at the areas that we struggle to obey, you will find those things in our lives that have an ensnarement or attraction or a power over us. They may be good things, maybe children, maybe family, maybe parenting, all good things, all of them have their place. Could be ministry, could be shepherding a core group. And yet at the moment that they hold us back from a simple obedience to the word of Jesus Christ, they have become an idol in our life and they are taking us from the world of light and glory and love of God. And they are pulling us back into a world of darkness and death and destruction. And we confront that on a daily basis. Peter let go of those nets. And then it says he followed after Jesus. And he took that role of slave and servant. No questions asked. And he followed it's a simple act of obedience. And yet I would propose to you that it's only simple on the surface because what you're seeing here, an obedience that is immediate, an obedience that surrenders or lets go, an obedience that follows and submits, each one of those aspects of that obedience which cannot be separated from the other is an obedience that is born from a living faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that confesses Christ as the Son of God, the King of glory, the light of the world, the one whom we are not worthy to look at, let alone come into his presence and follow. 
And as we look through the scriptures and you look at all the great saints from Abraham until the very end, you see an obedience, a simple obedience that is identical to Peter's. Think of Abraham. Think of God calling Abraham and saying to him, take the son whom you love and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him and kill him on the altar. What always astonishes me as I read that narrative is to see how Abram responded. And the verse that comes shortly after God's command, does anybody remember what it says? It says, Abraham got up early in the morning and then proceeded to do everything that the Lord commanded, all the way to putting his son on the altar and getting ready to kill his son. Abraham didn't lag behind. Abraham didn't hang out. Abraham didn't say, I'll go to Starbucks and have a coffee and I'll think about it. And I'll get there eventually. Abraham executed immediately. And yet, I have to say, brothers and sisters, how often in counseling are we tempted in conflict or in times that things are painful or that things are hurtful to delay to hesitate, to not be willing to pull the trigger or to say that we'll obey in part. How many times, I'm sure Hughie had this experience where you get called to the hospital for an alcoholic who tells you he wants to be in a drug rehab program, but then he tells you he's not ready to be admitted. He'll come back at 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. He wants to have one last drink. And of course, you know that you probably will get that call at three or four in the morning or maybe not ever for several days. And we laugh at that and we find it ridiculous and pathetic. And it is ridiculous and it is pathetic. And yet how often when it comes to the simple commands of the word of the Lord, whether it's to pray for an employer who is not treating us well or to pray for an enemy who is spitefully using us or whether it's to serve the least among us, or whether it's to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, how often do we delay in those things? And I want to propose to you that what the text basically makes clear is that to delay is to disobey. I want you to repeat that with me so you won't forget it. You ready? To delay is to disobey. One more time. To delay is to disobey. Emily, you're laughing at me, but you'll remember afterwards. There is no such thing as obedience in part. You don't obey part way. To say, I'm going to do half of what Jesus is asking me to do is to do nothing at all. To delay and to hesitate is ultimately a rejection of the Lordship of Christ the kingship of Christ, and it is a flat, outright rejection of the infinite love of God in Christ. Why do we struggle so much with that in our homes, in our marriages, in our work, in our ministries, in our relationships with one another? And I will tell you, and my wife can easily tell you that I, of all people, struggle very much with these things. And I want to go through quickly before we come to how 
the provisions of God, love will provide for us in times of trials. Just want to cover a few things of why these, why we struggle with these things. And hopefully these are things that are gleaned from my life and hopefully you can sympathize with them. I think many times we struggle first and foremost because we're afraid. We're afraid because when we really understand what obedience is, obedience to Christ, that what we're being asked is complete submission and surrender, it's talking about a complete loss of control. A complete loss of control. You're handing over the keys of the car to someone else. And that is a fearful and scary thing. And so what ends up happening so often is our hearts, our legalistic hearts take obedience and we basically jack it up and say, okay, obedience is a way that I can have merit before the Lord. And we twist it. Or we go the other direction and we say, okay, God is gracious so I don't have to worry about obedience at all. I will always fail. I will always fall short. And yet when we look at both of those both of those are a way of having control. One, I retain control by saying the terms in which I'm going to obey Christ. And the other is the same, that I wipe away the word altogether and I am a lot of myself. But both retain control. And the love of Christ affords us no such option. Because the love of Christ demonstrates to us that the love must come first if we are ever to obey truthfully and completely. And the only way that we will have a sacrifice that can stand on the altar that is worthy to reunite us with our God and Savior is not with the sacrifice of our own, but the sacrifice that he provides. And yet that sacrifice does not relinquish our responsibility to obey the word of God. We do not submit and we do not obey out of fear and losing control. But we also do not obey or submit also because there are things, as we said before, that we want to hang on to that we're not ready to relinquish, things that hold our hearts and have a power over us. And we see this in biblical counseling all the time, and I would propose this to you. If you want to really find out what the idols of your life are, Spend some time this week and go through your life and the testimony of your life and look at all the areas that you struggle to obey the word of God. I struggle, as Julie will tell you, in being gentle and long-suffering with people who are intent on causing destruction or harm to either themselves or their others. Maybe that comes from the physician that's in me. And yet, when we consider God's command that we be patient and long-suffering, even, as Paul tells Timothy, to those who are being difficult or those who are holding fast to doctrine that's contrary to ours, that hopefully God may grant them the gift of repentance, the Lord allows me no such luxuries. He allows me no way to say, well, I wasn't gentle there because this person was being very difficult or this person was very annoying or I was not gentle with Julie because I was up all last night or because I had to do all these different things for her. No way. 
None of those excuses cover over the fact that there is an idol in my heart at that time. And the idol is I would like things to be the way I think they are right in my own eyes. And that is true for however many different ways that we struggle to obey the word of the Lord. Because when we hesitate, what we're saying to the Lord is, I can run this situation better than you can. We resist because we're afraid to lose control. We resist because there are idols in our lives that are holding over us. But we also resist because ultimately, we do not believe Jesus is who he says he is. We do not believe his word and we do not believe his promises. Because if we did, like Peter, we'd have no problems in being there right away, right now, right this minute, that whatever his word commands us to do, we'd be willing to do it. Why? Not because we're trying to improve our place with him, but he is worthy to be obeyed and his word is worthy to be obeyed and he is worthy of our trust and he is worthy of our life not only because he created it but because he is the only one who can recreate it in his image and deliver us from the bondage of our sin and the bondage and depravity of our own hearts that's the challenge that waits for us these are things that Peter knew and that Peter learned over the course of his life. This is something that Peter encountered on that beach. Peter responded to that command and that promise. Immediately, he responded in a way that surrendered everything in his life to Christ, and he responded in a way that submitted and that followed Christ. And as you know, the history of the world and the life of Peter was never the same since. And as you go through the Gospels and you read the life of Peter, what you will see is that Peter often makes mistakes. Peter often gets off track. Peter blows it in big ways. It's very interesting about Peter. Peter always obeyed. Whenever Christ asked, he was quick to do. More often than not, the mistakes that Peter made was when he decided to add from his own ideas to what Jesus had already commanded and said, Jesus, I can make this better. Let me come out and do, or let me say, or let me do. And then he usually shot himself in the foot, and that's usually where we're at. But when he just simply obeyed the word of Christ out of love for the Savior and out of honoring for who he was, Peter was always in the right place. And ultimately what happened on that shore in Galilee when Peter was restored after he was a broken and humbled man. What did Jesus do after he restored Peter? He gave him a command, gave him an order. Jesus expressed his love again to Peter through a command, feed my sheep. And as you go through 1 Peter, what you will see is that for Peter, the word of the Lord and obedience to the word of the Lord is a spirit-led path that keeps us in fellowship with the Lord. And as the community who he's writing to in 1 Peter are being beaten, their homes are being taken, they are being slandered, what does Peter do? He reminds them of the greatness of Christ. He reminds them of the greatness of their salvation. And then he calls them to obey 
And obedience is a recurrent theme. And for obedience, for Peter, obedience is the way home after you've lost your way. An obedience that's born of faith in Christ, an obedience that is given to us by the Spirit transforming our heart into the image of Christ is an obedience that in our darkest hours when things are collapsing on us, it's the word of God and obedience to the word that provides us with the straight path home. Obedience also provides us with fellowship. And what we see in Peter's life is that that path of obedience, obedience, simple obedience to the word of Christ, is the path where we receive an increasing fellowship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because that is the path that he is on. But it's also the path that gives us fellowship with other people who are obeying. It also brings conflict with people who are opposed to the cross. But when we look at areas where our unity in our homes, in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our ministries is breaking down, the question we need to ask ourselves first, is this opposition or conflict because I'm obeying? Or is this conflict that's coming because we do not all lack the mind of Christ and we are not all obeying him and obeying his word together? What is the path to unity? The path to unity is the simple obedience to the word of the Lord. But beyond that, what Peter knew also that was told to his best friend John in John 15 and John 14 is that obedience brings the joy of the Lord. That Jesus says to the disciples before he departs, abide in me and apart from me you can do nothing. And then he says, abide in me. And then he connects abiding in him and the love that is received by abiding in him by keeping or guarding his commands. It is not that we merit or achieve or get somewhere higher in the love of Christ because we obey, but it's because by obeying, we walk down the path behind Christ. And as we walk down that path with him, we receive that unity and that fellowship where the infinite love of God in Christ and in his word cannot help but spilling over in our lives. But when we disobey, we are on another path, which is darkness and the absence of that love. But the place of love and joy is the place of obedience. How often in biblical counseling, when people come in and see that they're depressed or they discouraged, one of the first orders of business is to sit down with them gently and first say, are there any areas that you're not obeying the Lord? And maybe they're discouraged for other reasons, and maybe they are. But it's important to look at that because one of the key things that kills our joy in the Lord is to ignore his word and to ignore what a simple act of obedience and faith is. These are the things that in the face of conflict, in the face of difficulty, come and protect us and gird us up and unite us with the Lord. Why do they do that? Because obedience is quite simply an acknowledgement of the glory of Jesus as the Son of God, as the light of God's glory, as the Savior who has come to save us, and the only one who can deliver us from our sins. So as we circle back to those questions that I asked you at the beginning, 
what are the ways in which God gives his love to us? Through his person, through the person and presence of Christ, through the word of Christ that's given in a command and a promise, through the command to repent. But what are the ways in which he calls each one of us to receive his love, an opportunity to receive that love in every aspect of our life, in your marriage, in your work, in your church, in the elder board, in your core group, each one of those, the opportunity for the joy of the Lord and the infinite love of the Lord and his mercy and grace to come in and do a transforming work of wonder and to make you into the person he's called you to be, which is someone who is made in the image of Christ, is all available through a simple obedience that's born of faith. So, brothers and sisters, I just exhort you this week to consider your life in each area, to consider your testimony, and consider whose word rules your life. Is Christ the king of your life, or is he the janitor to take out the trash? May he always, in every word, thought, and deed, and every avenue and nook and crevice of this church in our lives and our marriage. Always be the king who is worthy to be followed and to be obeyed immediately, entirely, and wholeheartedly and joyfully. Let's close a prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to humble yourself and become a man and come to us, each one of us, face to face, and to confront us with your word, with your love, and with your glory. Lord, this day, may we hear and may we obey, and may you be so glorified. In your name we pray, amen.